Hi, I'm Jim Martin. You know, we got to talking about Raw as we were producing this episode, Elizabeth and myself. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but we're in our fourth year of doing Raw. And when we came up with the idea, we asked Sam, Grant, Graham, Shirley and Brian if they wanted to come on the show, this new thing, and give it a try. Obviously they did. And every month since that time, with rare exception, we've all managed to gather together across time zones, schedules, location issues, all of that to do the recording. I mean, I know there's been numerous occasions where Sam Manicom has rented a hotel room where otherwise he would have camped just to record raw. So have the Rixes, so has Graham Field. Grant Johnson has, has paused his ridiculously busy days to record in the middle of the day sometimes, other times stay up late. We've all swapped around with the time zones, some staying up late, some getting up early. Everyone's reworked their schedules just to get together to do this. And all of it is driven by passion for what we're doing. Passion. It's, it's just what Raw is all about. It's what Adventure Rider Radio is all about. Passion. You know, this summer, we're going to pass the five-year mark on Adventure Rider Radio. Five years. I'm not even sure that when I, when I produced that first episode almost five years ago that I still, or that I even thought that I'd be doing it now. I didn't have a grand scheme. I just loved what we were talking about. It wasn't a business idea. I love what we're talking about. I love riding. I love motorcycles. And I really, really love, I really love producing audio stories and interviews. And, and since we, the beginning of the show, since that first episode, the show focus has always been trying to make every episode better than the last. And we, I know maybe we didn't always achieve that, but that's what we always strive for. We aren't retired, Elizabeth and I. We aren't rich. In fact, we're the opposite of both of those. I only mentioned that because I saw somewhere where someone thought that maybe we were retired and they, they posted that somewhere. I, as a matter of fact, I doubt very much that I'm ever going to be able to retire. I don't think I'd want to anyway. At least that's how I feel now. In fact, the money we make from the, from the show, from Adventure Rider Radio um, and Raw at this point, I don't think would support the average person in North America. I mean, luckily, we live in a way that, that makes it possible. Not really comfortable all the time. But, but yes, we, we have some advertisers and we have some listener support. But the business is unlike any other that I've had since I was like 19 or 20, back when Elizabeth and I started our first business. Um, we were marketing imported knives and um, a product that was actually the, the original shopping bag uh, turned garbage bag holder. You take your shopping bags and fold it on anyway. Adventure Rider Radio is driven by passion first. Money's not the goal. We wouldn't be doing it for that. We'd choose something else that's scalable, something that has far more money-making potential. Um, we love producing the show. And over the past four and a half years, I've talked to so many incredible people with great stories, wonderful messages. And each time I do an interview, I'm sort of further inspired and motivated by the people and by their stories and by their experiences in the world. Their stories of travel, uh, of meeting people, even the tech pieces and the writer skills things that we do. There's so much to learn and so inspirational and I just get so much from it. And Elizabeth and I are like, we're really honored to be able to bring these stories to you. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, despite the fact that Adventure Rider Radio is, is very successful and extremely popular, it's still grassroots. It's driven by passion. It's a passion-driven podcast. It takes far more effort to produce it than the return we get from it, far more. And we're good with that because although we have to eat, what's most important to us is producing great material for you to listen to. 
it, it just feels good. So really, I, I want to thank you for being a part of this. I want to thank you for listening. Thanks for sending in the comments, the suggestions. Thanks for supporting and, and telling others about the show. Really, I mean, none of this could have happened without you. So I just, I just want to say thank you. And we, we talked a lot producing this, this episode of Raw. And it just sort of got me just thinking, you know, I want, I want to say something at the start of this one. And it's sort of difficult to convey just how grateful Elizabeth and I are for you listening to the show. A- anyway, thanks. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off we do from Adventure Rider Radio each month about motorcycle travel. And on this episode of Raw, Graham Field's identity is hacked. He tells us a story from a hotel in India that I'm not even sure he can pay for. Maybe he's still there. Thoughts on uh, Urals for travel, Urals, the three-wheeled motorcycle, and electric motorcycles and travel, all this coming up and more. But before we get going, I want to give a shout out to a couple of people or a number of people that have helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. We have Gregory Lowry, Andrew Wong, Edward Fleming, and Stephen Howard. Thank you all very much. Support of $50 or more. Get your name put on the show just like I've done now. We'd love your monthly support on our Patreon account. Drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and click on support. This episode of Raw is supported by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations. And now here we go, ARR Raw for February 2019, Season 4. Grammar, are you still in India? Yeah, yeah, I'm still in India. Oh, that's okay. I hear the horns. Yeah, I can't about that. From the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada, where it's snowing and it shouldn't be, it is February 2019, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and everything else that crosses <laughs> everything else, <laughs> anything else that crosses our minds. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. Now, um, I want to throw in here that we're really pleased to have the support of Fresh Tracks. This isn't the actual ad. Well, maybe it should be. This should be the ad. Freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. Um, that's freshtracks.co.uk, and I think it's really cool. I mean, I, we're all pretty excited to, to have this. Anyway, so my name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-hosts, and I'm, I'm going to kick it off with Graham Field, because Graham, now now if you listen to Adventure Rider Radio, uh, the, the episode before we recorded this, uh, I spoke with Graham, and he was in India with a horrible connection, but he, he's still in India. Um, Graham, it's your, your last day? It's my last day. Yeah, no more sleeps till the plane. We, we've got a lovely flight at 3 a.m. <laughs> wow. Is that for, for like, is it a cheap flight? Is that what you do, 3 a.m.? Well, no, of course not, Jim. It's the best flight. No, of course. No. <laughs> Did I say cheap? I meant, <laughs> sorry, I meant planned. <laughs> uh, it's, um, I, I think it's just the way it works out, because that way when you get back to Europe, it's uh, a nice, uh, a sort of a very reasonable time. I think we get to Amsterdam at about nine o'clock in the morning and then get to back to Bulgaria at about two o'clock in the afternoon. So the other end of the journey is a very civilized time. It just means you start at a really stupid time. Mm. So why India? What, what are you doing there? Uh, well, it was supposed to be. Well, it is a holiday. There's no two ways about it because we came last year, had a great time. So me and my girlfriend came back again this year. It 
I've got to say I've had better trips. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Are, are we about to hear a rant? Well, no, no, not a rant. You know, I, I want to bring something up. You remember uh, a few uh, episodes ago, we were talking about traveling and money and credit cards and how you do about and how you go about, you know, finances on the road. Well, um, I left with my two credit cards and my uh, debit card three days before I left Bulgaria. Got a phone call from the bank saying, uh, you've had fraudulent activity on your credit card. We're counseling it. We're stopping it. We'll get you another one out immediately. So well, you're not going to get it out in time. I leave in three days. Okay, well, I've still got a credit card and a debit card. So we fly to India, pay my first hotel bill on a credit card, go use it a second time, doesn't work. Call my bank. Yes, there's been fraudulent activity. I've been well and truly hacked. People are spending a lot of money on my cards. Luckily, the banks have caught it. So my second credit card is cancelled. Now I've got one card left. I've also got US dollars. I'm slowly working our way through the US dollars. Go to check into a hotel about four days ago. Credit cards not working. Call them up. And this is two o'clock in the morning in the UK. And they said, our system's down for repair. That's probably why it's not working. Try again at six. So, well, I really need to pay the bill now. But OK, try it again later. No, there's been fraudulent activity on that credit card. It's like, look, you can't cancel this at all. This is imperative that I have this as my last source of money. So what they've done is they put a block on it and I have to call them up Go through my um, go through my security details, which I'm not very good at because I never know the, qu- the, <laughs> the answers to the questions of my security <laughs> details. So now what we have to do, go into a hotel, ask for their Wi-Fi code, connect to Wi-Fi, get on Skype, call the bank, go through security, get the credit card unblocked, put it in their machine whilst I'm on the phone to the bank, pay the bill. It's authorised. The credit, the bank stops the credit card again. The hotel gets its money. It's not exactly what you call stress-free travel. <laughs> wow. So, so let me let me start at the top with this. So, have you been? Have you had identity theft or something? I mean, these are all different cards. Yeah. You think it something. is something? The thing is, I'm not. I don't check other accounts in case what's going on is because I'm using my laptop and someone's hacking through that. So, I don't want to open any other accounts to see what's going on with them. So the three accounts which I had, or three credit cards, are all stopped. So, yeah, something big's been going on, and I don't look into it until I get to a good, secure connection. So so you use a VPN, though, I thought. Not for this, because, as you know, the, the Internet is so bad, while you're waiting for a VPN to dial up, it just takes that. It's just another hassle, another drag on the internet, a little bit slower on the bandwidth. So, no, I haven't been doing that. So we could be hacked right now. Somebody could be listening to us. Yeah, someone might be taking their sponsorship. Creepy. <laughs> Isn't that your idea? <laughs> so this is like, I mean, it's not only stressful for paying the bill, but it's also stressful for what are you going to be dealing with when you get home? Is your house going to be there? You know, or, or... It's, it's everything. I mean, you, you, you can't book anything on booking.com. When Amazon want to pay me my, um, what do they call it, my disbursement, they can't pay my disbursement because the card they use has now been blocked. So Amazon owe me money. They can't pay me. It's just, it's a, it's a big pile of poo, Jim. It's really annoying. Wow. So, w- w- so what do you, what do you think you've learned from this? I mean, is it, is it the VPN thing or how would you do things differently? 
well, until I get back and talk to the banks and they do want to talk to me about it when I get home and they'll give me a bit more information. But I mean, it's been hacked and used for Uber taxis. It's been used for cinema tickets. It's been used £500 parking fee. I don't even have a vehicle at the moment, let alone a country to park it in. <laughs> so what is your card number? Since this has been hacked, I mean... <laughs> it's a password, by the way. It's 5434. <laughs> Are they all the same password? <laughs> so did you access all of those cards on the internet while you've been there? No. I haven't. I mean, I have since because now they're frozen. I want to see just how many transactions which weren't mine had occurred. Um, but oh, I, I don't know. I've got this wonderful thing to look forward to when I get home tomorrow. Isn't logging on to check your transactions a risk as well? Probably, but they're, yeah, well, they're cancelling. They are, but they're cancelled now anyway. The, tra- the, the cards are cancelled. So all I'm looking at is what has been spent on my account by somebody else who's got my details. Well, without logging into your bank, without a VPN, you're at risk of somebody getting your password to your account. And then who knows what they have permission to do from your account. Like from your account, they could transfer money to somewhere else. They don't need a credit card. But to, to get into my bank account, I've got these little thing that looks like a little pocket calculator. And every time it generates a new number that I have to put in to, to access my account. Okay. So my computer, nothing can store that number because it's random and it's different every time I log in. Okay. So you're using two-factor authentication. What, what is that, Graham? What, what is it you're getting that, that gives you a different or that generates a number? Is that something on your phone? No, no. It's a gadget. Oh. I use the same thing. Yeah, you see we it more in Europe than you do in North America. It's very rare in North America. So you get it from our the bank. Our bank actually does it, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so that makes sense that you're you're protected then because you're you're having to put in this random code. But wow, that is yeah. that is quite a mess. Now, could you not get by with cash or, or would that not be possible? Other than the online purchases, would you be able to get by with cash if you had enough? I did, and we were. And then the, the wonderfully internationally recognized U.S. dollar... And we've been in some very small towns, and I can't find anybody to change U.S. dollars. I mean, normally in, in India, it's like, hello, sir, change money. Where you go, what you want? Hashish, good hashish, sir. But no, <laughs> no one wants to change any money. So it's like I'm trying to choose Bulgarian level or something. Look, mate, it's an international currency. They're brand new, fresh, lovely, crisp $50 bills. Oh, no, sir, we can't take this. And so it's... I've, I've managed to do it. We've managed to survive. And luckily, I bought some, uh, I got some euros out of the machine in Amsterdam when we transferred coming over here. So we're surviving. We're not, we're, we're not destitute by any means. But if we were staying another week, things would be seriously awkward. <laughs> Good thing you're not from the UK anymore. You wouldn't be able to have those euros. It was funny because I went. I, I did have some pounds. I had some pounds left as well. And last night I went to a money changer and I said, "I've got some pre-Brexit pounds worth more." Uh, <laughs> that'll be a souvenir. <laughs> well, Graham, it will be interesting to see you know what comes of this. Um, you know, we're going to have to talk about this on the on the next show. I mean, that's got to be that's that's quite a bit to unravel when you get back. I feel for you. 
Well, yeah, I did, I thought, the reason I want to talk about it, I just thought it was relevant because we were talking about credit cards and travelling with money, and here I am, a victim, and I just thought I'd give you some up-to-date what happens when this all goes on. Well, and I think my big question would be, how do they get one card after the next? Was it done at a deeper level? In other words, were you, were you hacked somewhere at home? Do they get your identity there? Or is it all while you're in India right now traveling? Well, this is the one happened before I even went to India. Admittedly, I'd used that card to purchase some things for the holiday in India. So to Indian companies and they're different banks. I mean, they're completely different banks. So Whatever it is, it's quite big. Yeah, there has to be a common denominator there that uh, needs to be sorted. Somewhere, but yeah. you'd think if it was parking fines, if it was Uber trips, if it was, it wouldn't be so difficult to find these people, would it? You wouldn't think so. Well, that's uh, I know it's. But a, you'll, it's a, you'll never somewhere. You'll, you'll never find out. No, but 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 has like the bank obviously covers this sort of thing, but and I guess what you're going to have to do is go back through and figure out where it started, what was real, and what isn't. Yeah, yeah. So you so, can tell them the trip I to India. Most of my life, Jim, trying to figure out what's real and what isn't. <laughs> We're all doing that. <laughs> so, so you can go back and tell them the flight to India and say, no, that wasn't me. No. <laughs> <laughs> that well, also, let, let's get down the list here. Grant Johnson, who is in British Columbia. Grant? Enjoying the snow, as it were. Well, actually, today I'm not enjoying the snow much, but I'm not out. But tomorrow I'm planning on going skiing. It's Ooh. beautiful out there. There's going to be lots. There's lots of snow. The mountains freshly covered. Awesome. I am going skiing. Looking forward to it very much. You're going to have to hurry. It's uh, it's not going to hang around for long. No, it's supposed to rain on Thursday. So Oof. Wednesday, tomorrow, it's supposed to be sunny. And today, it's currently snowing, and we've got about six inches fresh. So, yep, I'm on. Yeah, the whole coast has got a bunch of snow here that we're not supposed to have. I mean, it's kind of late February for snow. You're thinking, you know, I would have preferred this around Christmas. <laughs> well, we'll take what we can get. For the skiers, this is fine because last month was not good. It was just cold and almost no snow at all and ice and not much fun, but it's looking good now. Jumping right across the pond to the UK, Sam Manicom. Sam, is it, I, I, I'm forgetting now, is it evening? It's uh, it's morning for you. It's morning. It's um, it's still dark outside, but actually we're, we're getting very close now to this time of day being um, uh, sunrise. So that'd be nice. Yeah, I'm in um, Exeter um, and later on in the morning, I'm heading up to London to start setting up at the London Motorcycle Show. So it's going to be a good day today. It's a oh. beautiful day for the ride. The forecast is going to be excellent. So I'm really looking forward to that. You've got a, a big show there. How long is this show? Three days. So this is um, a fairly short um, show for the UK. You guys um, have a lot of motorcycle shows. Yeah, we do. We like bikes over here. I know. How many shows is it? Oh, good grief. I haven't got a clue. Graham, what do you think? Must, must be. That's where you draw the line. I mean, yeah, you know, it does. fewer motorcycle shows, custom shows, classic shows. Yep. There's one every weekend through the summer. Uh, yep. used, to be, used to be my social life when I lived in England. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're really sport for choice. I mean, whatever your passion is, there's going to be something going on. I mean, with adventure motorcycling now, there must be six or seven events, at least um, decent-sized ones, um, during the course of the year. Wow. Oh, it's That's, a small country too, hey? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm always yeah. impressed with that. And all the way over to Australia, where it is hot and summery, Shirley and Brian, how are you doing? Um, 
Yeah, good, thanks. The weather's turned. It's a little cool today. It's only 25, which we're kind of happy about after a couple of weeks of 40 plus every day. But it's going to be hot again on the weekend, back up to the mid to high 30s. Mm. Yeah, and I'm still recovering from my weekend ride and um, recovering motorcycles all over the high country in um, Victoria and New South Wales from um, the mayhem we left behind. Oh, um, is it oh, yeah. is it a rough ride or is it just your age that's getting here? <laughs> uh, it's just rough people, Jim. Rough people, yeah. Oh, it's rough no, people. no, no. There's a, we have a we have an event called Chumps, which is. Um, uh, a, a group of um, all motorcycle journalists. I'm not sh- quite sure what it really stands for. No, it's been lost in translation many times, but I think it's something like Consortium of Horribly Underplayed Motorcycle Press or something similar. But uh, we all meet up in the high country from Sydney and Melbourne and um, party hard, ride hard and break bikes, basically. Wow. Um, so we had um, one guy on a super duke who fried his back tyre probably trying to keep up with my old thing. Oh, <laughs> no, and uh, we had another one, which was um, a uh, Yamaha Tanir, which we've just picked up, which um, has travelled through Mongolia and all the stands and all the rest of it, and it's got a fried clutch. Um, we had a test bike up there, which was one of the new Royal Enfield 650 Twins, which is a, a nice-looking little bike, in my opinion, anyway. And uh, that ran out of petrol. Um but I made it home pretty much in one piece, but very tired. So got home on um, Sunday night, then uh, turned around today early in the morning with a friend to, with a trailer to go and pick up all these bikes and bring them back. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> another 100 kilometre day. I was just going to point out what a great wife I am. It was my <laughs> birthday while he was away with all his mates. What? And on the Saturday night... A guy that we met in Panama in 2012, who we then bumped into at a service station, a petrol station in the Yukon um, the next year, turned up and stayed for the weekend. (laughs) So I reckon that's very close to wife of the century material. Wow. Brian, Brian, Brian. I've been this for a long time. (laughs) I know I'm going to (laughs) pay. Birthday. Wow. That's – you know, it, it, it begs the question, Brave. what's most important? I, I can't go there. Be <laughs> <laughs> careful, Jim. <laughs> well, I, um, yeah, I'd, I'd be uh, interested uh, in being a fly on the wall over the next couple of days there at your place. <laughs> Find out what that's like. <laughs> well, I, I, I mentioned uh, Fresh Tracks as our new sponsor of Raw, which we're all pretty excited about. Um, the owner, Dan Collins, is also a listener to Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. And um, aside from being a, a sponsor of the show, Dan also had a topic suggestion, which I thought was pretty good. Now, we're not giving him special treatment here just because he's a sponsor. But, but he suggested... You get your, first, your question first straight away as soon as you want. But no special treatment, Dan. Was that obvious? Was that bad? Yeah. <laughs> spent a full, full week researching the answer as well. <laughs> so his suggestions were lessons learned from near misses on the road and... And I, I always think that, um, boy, that can that can conjure up some interesting things. And it also it always brings up those those stories that tend to be um, the ones that some people will scratch their head at and say, "How could you possibly be so stupid?" But those are often the things that that um, you know you get away with. You know, sometimes you do something really stupid, and you get away with it. And you think, "Oh, that was that was really close." And I guess what we're looking for here is 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 things that we've learned from those. 
See, that's no. the tricky part, Jim. The, the, the last part? The, yes. Mm. Mm. I, I can tell you one of um, Brian's oh, great mishaps. Go on, drop him in it, Shirley. Travelling along, um, someone, the riding component of our duo, was a little unhappy with the speed of the traffic in front of us, so he decided to overtake, which was cool. Apart from the bus coming the other way, <laughs> and just I don't know how we were so lucky that on on the other side of the bus was a street, which we careered up and came to a halt with lots of people looking quite bemused as to where we'd come from, Uh and the bus was more than a little happy that we weren't a bonnet ornament. Now, has he learnt from that? I don't well, the, the think bus so. Over. Do you know where it was? It was in a batter bed in Pakistan, which is where Osama bin Laden was found. And um, I've come around, a, we're in the village and I've come around this corner and there was just nowhere to go. I've disappeared up this side road in amongst all the goats and cattle and all the rest of it. But anyway. But I, it was impatience, wasn't it? Oh, this Have you learned? Of course. We weren't very patient. No, Brian, I'm sorry. I don't believe it because you even gave an excuse there that, that was not someone who's learned a lesson who has humility. What you said was you, you had some sort of excuse, some sort of reason. That's not learning. That's not learning. That's right. I went through all this, and I've got a list of 11 instances. And I can tell you he hasn't learned from any of them. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that one time you went on a motorcycle trip when you should have stayed home for your wife's birthday, and then you were going to talk about what you learned from that. Next session. I was having accidents in January for about three or four years running. And I got to the point at one stage there where I would not bring the bike out in January. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I was, as you know, I'm an ex-police officer and I was going for my medical to join the police force. And I'm dressed nicely and I very rarely ride without boots on, but I had shoes on this day. And as I'm going along a, a dual lane, uh, this woman moves over on me and crushes my left foot between the car and the motorbike. Mm. It was a seventh Honda. So I had a, had a big scar right down my leg from that. Um, the next January, I flipped the, the bike over a car at 100 kilometres an hour. Luckily, I was wearing my race leathers at the time and wore them down to nothing. And um, kangaroos, I've got to say, I've had – Plenty of instances with wildlife in Australia, and you get to know where they are, and you be very, very careful. Um, and you know, you get, develop a sixth sense when you see something on the road that's travelling, perhaps not at the speed that you think it should be travelling at. I've developed that sixth sense when you see a farmer's ute um, trundling along, and usually all the, the back brake lights and indicator lights are all broken. And all of a sudden, you see them veer off, turn right into a paddock. Um, I've had two or three near misses like that. So, yeah, I, I, I think I've learned something, Shirley. Yeah, goodness knows what it is, though. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> oh, what about the time in, in Turkey when, the, you know, it's dark, you come into a town and you're looking around for a hotel. We were backing up. I was 
just paddling the bike backwards. And um, all of a sudden, there was no road. Someone had stolen the grate off the road and my foot went straight into it. And we just went crash over here. I pulled my foot out just in time and skun your leg, didn't I? Yeah, you learned something from I that. I did learn something, yeah, yeah. When Be Dan careful. suggested near misses on the road, I thought of Sam and I thought, no, those aren't near misses. <laughs> no, 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 no. What have you, Sam? What have you learned? <laughs> oh, I'm, just, I'm just smiling listening to Brian because, I, mate, I think your guardian angel and my guardian angel are well related. <laughs> but they like playing they pranks. Hard, don't they, hey? <laughs> yes, they do. I think, I think that's true, Sam. Yeah. Um, I've had a few lucky escapes and, so, and sometimes it's just been because somebody else has done something stupid and I haven't been able to anticipate it. And sometimes it's because I've done something stupid and sometimes it's just because of a moment of, of being a little bit overconfident. And one pops into my mind when Brian was talking and I was just thinking about um, the Sani Pass in South Africa. Uh, this is a beautiful road and it leads from um, a region called KwaZulu-Natal up through the Drakensberg Mountains. And it, it, it takes you up to this tiny little country um, called Lesotho. It's about um, 9,400 feet. And this road is... Um, tight hairpins a lot of the way it's gravel rounded boulders little streams roll across it and um steep some sections are one in three um, and there are sheer drops off to the side now i went up this with burgett on the back I, um and going up was fine and i was thinking you know geez all these stories i i'd heard about this um it's nothing like as bad as i thought it was going to be um, anyway, we got to the top and we had a bit of a pot around and then, oh, okay, let's go down again. It's, it was cold up there. Um, and back down, well, it was a little bit less controllable, wasn't it? Because um, gravity and gravel don't work very well as a combination. And one of the corners, I could see it coming up and we'd made a comment to each other on the way up. Wow, that was sharp. Um, and we got to, I don't know, I suppose about... Um, 20 yards away from it and Birgit said I'm not staying on when we're going around that and I thought oh that's good just a, a little bit less weight going around the corner anyway so she walked around and I tried to line it up and I stuff it up I'm in the wrong position and, and I'm, I guess I'm probably only a, about a yard out but I've got no choice because this corner is so steep I can't get off the bike and push it back up I don't think even Birgit and I could have pulled it back up again and so I decide, well, you know, sort of go for it. So I'm standing up and I'm foot on the back brake and trying hard not to lock the back brake. And the bike hits a bit of gravel and all of a sudden we're going straight for the edge. And I know I'm not going to make it around this corner. And I don't know what it was, perhaps a, a, a boulder underneath the gravel or something like that. But it just, when I was a foot away from the edge, bounced me in the right direction. And I'll tell you what, I got off the bike and I shook for about 20 minutes as soon as we got somewhere that was level. Um, I still don't know how I made it around that. And it was just because I wasn't lined up properly and I had the confidence to think, oh, you can do this. Stupid, mm. eh? How, how big of a drop are you talking? Oh, oh hundreds of feet. very long way. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, very long yeah. way. It's very yeah. steep. Yeah. So you'd have trouble yeah, going back up. My ratchet straps wouldn't have helped. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so what, what did you learn from that? Um, actually take the time out. 
to, to really stop and think about things. I reckon probably we might have been able to manoeuvre the bike into a better position um, by lying it down on the ground and dragging it sideways. Yeah, that's a tough one to learn, isn't it? I mean, it's easy to... Ah, that's a that's an easy one to, to fall for, but... Yeah. I mean, I good on Birgit for realising she needed to bail. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, smart cookie. Self, self-preservation self society found a member. <laughs> yep, Sandy Pass bit my ass, too, but not oh, quite the these? same way. No, I, Susan and I rode down Sandy Pass, two up on the 1200GS on street tires, and that was fine. No problem at all. Um, once we got past that, though, we discovered what African mud is all about. African mud is the slipperiest, slimiest, greasiest stuff I've ever been on in my life. <laughs> Uh, we were riding with some other people and I was in the lead and came around a corner and there was a big stretch of mud and potholes and a truck tottering through in exactly my line where I wanted to go. So I had to take a bad line and the rear wheel just caught one of these deep potholes and instantly skipped sideways. So boom, we were down. And would you believe I could barely stand up? And the rest of the crew came along and they were slipping and sliding and a couple of them fell down trying to walk over to help me pick up the bike. That's greasy. So now I know all about greasy mud in Africa. Slow down, pay attention, and just walk it through. It's just so slippery. Mm, Yeah, when to get off and walk. That's that's another tough one. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I could have ridden it if I'd gone really, really slowly, but I, I... really didn't have a lot of choice. I could have slammed on the brakes, but if I'd slammed on the brakes, I might have gone down in the mud anyway. It was just a bad combination. Coming around the corner probably too quickly and and couldn't see. So my bad, dumb. And then this truck was just in the wrong spot. So I had I had to go downside, which was not good. He had the good line down the middle. <laughs> the red yeah. Murrum roads up in Uganda, Tanzania and Kenya are a nightmare in the rain too, aren't they? Have you ridden those in the wet? No, I haven't. It's it's um it's it almost uh, in in the dry. It's just sort of I don't know. It's it's firm. It's hard packed. It's a little bit of loose stuff on top. It, you can hooli along that at, at a really nice speed. But as soon as it rains on it, it's well. You might as well be riding on racing slicks. Um, mm-hmm. And anything that has been sort of etched into the road surface is going to um, bounce you around all over the place. And because it's all red. Um, if you're riding in the middle of the day when the sun's overhead, you can't see the change in, in definition in the road. And so you're completely at the whims of whatever this um, um, slime wants you to do. It's, um, yeah, can yeah. make some very long days. What is it, yeah. clay? Look, look on the bright side, sort of though. Clay, you know, yeah. la- landing in mud is um, a pretty soft landing, really. It's not so bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we went down. Neither of us yeah. were hurt in the slightest. And, and I was probably doing... Oh, I don't know, 40K anyway, when we went down, but it was just kind of a thump. Oh, well, hmm, darn, <laughs> that was bad. I wonder if Susan said, oh, well. Well, no, as usual, <laughs> she was muddier than I was. <laughs> so what did you learn about oh, not laughing at Susan when she's covered in mud, Grant? Oh, I don't know if I've told this story or not on the air, but maybe I should because it was another learning experience of sorts. And that, and Shirley's kind of hitting the nail on the head here. We were in Guatemala, 1987, and following this little track, 
and I have—I don't remember where we were trying to go. Oh, I don't remember it was. It was some Spanish fort from 1700s or 1600s or something. Anyway, we were following this little tiny track, and it wasn't much of a track, and it got narrower, and it got narrower, and then it got rutted, and then it got wet and slimy and slippery and greasy, and, of course, we're fully loaded. And all of a sudden, I, I thought to myself, we're going down. So I just kind of stepped off as the bike fell over. And Susan, this was Susan's first crash ever on a motorcycle. So what does she do? Of course, rolls and slops into the mud and picks herself up. And, you know, oh darn! Sorry about that, dear. Uh, <laughs> and she was she was she was okay. Yeah, you know, I was I was she, was she was fine. No worries. And then we both kind of went, "What's that?" And we looked up at the farm up above us and all the mud coming down from the farm. <laughs> 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 you know what's going on, don't you? Oh, yeah. And here's me, pristine, clean, muddy boots. Uh-huh. That's it. And Susan's been rolling in it. Oh. Not a happy camper. And you're still married. Extraordinary, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> so, Grant, what was your theory? Get it, Make it really, really bad the first time. And if she survives that, then from that time onwards, whatever you do, it's okay. Yep, something like that. <laughs> At least that's the theory. It seems to be working so far. <laughs> that reminds uh, me, mate, of this story. <laughs> that reminds me of a story. We were um, we did a, a charity ride. Remember the, the Chernobyl disaster? We had a lot of people come out and stay in um, one of our uh, um, army facilities here, and we decided to do a charity ride and take these kids for rides on motorbikes. So we go up there and have a nice barbecue and take the kids for a ride. We're on our way back, and I'm riding with one of my mates who is is on a sports bike, similar to your um, Triumph, Graham. And um, we traveled, we we caught up with this truck that was carrying cattle, and we're in front, and we we got stuck behind it, and all of a sudden, a couple of cows let go in a big way. And uh, I was able to duck down behind the fairing, but my mate copped at everything, all over him and of course it cooks on the motor and it stinks <laughs> and all I can see is him riding along with his, his head bouncing from side to side obviously swearing to himself <laughs> put into the nearest service station and just grabbed a hose and hosed each other down and all our mates, about 30 of them they pulled up on the side of the road and they were all falling over just laughing at us <laughs> so <laughs> what yeah, was, that? was the, the last thing I learned Listen, don't follow the don't uh, travel too close <laughs> Yeah, I learned the same one. You, you got shot on as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, many times. Yeah, I'm glad I you guys told that story because yes. I haven't had that happen. I never even thought about it. You haven't ridden in farm country enough. <laughs> well, I, I think maybe I just don't follow so close as you do. I mean, to me, anything to like that has something alive in it that can kick stuff around or maybe, you know, blowing around, that's something I tend to be back from a little bit. Yeah, but when they're doing five kilometers an hour up a long, long, long hill, you get a little bit impatient. Oh. And, of course, I think Brian would agree with me. Impatience is probably the number one cause of near misses and crashes. Definitely. I hate to admit no, I'm, not yeah, I'm not impatient. No, not in the slightest. <laughs> Graham, how about you? You're, you're awfully quiet there. No, never had a near miss, Jim. Perfect rider, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Graham, I was taking a drink. <laughs> I've got, I've got two. 
Um, a long one and a short one. Um, the uh, Now, I've told a bit of this story before, but I'm going to give you a full-length version. Uh, I was in Mexico, riding alone. I was going to visit a friend. He wasn't free until the Saturday. So I had three days to do what should have been a two-day trip. So I had plenty of time on my hands. I was riding along the coast by a place called Tabasco, which isn't just something you put in your Bloody Mary. It's an actual town. And uh, I stopped for a lunch. And one of the truck drivers in this little cafe had uh, sort of implied that he also has a motorcycle. We swapped a few pleasantries. And I get back on the bike and I'm riding. Now, the topes we've talked about before in Mexico, the speed bumps, uh, are pretty horrible things anyway. But for the trucks, the multi-axle trucks, they have to go so slowly. So it's a very good time to overtake them. You've only got two axles to get over the bump, whereas they've got, I don't know, 12 or something. So I overtake this truck driver, give him a little hoot and a wave, off I go. I'm not going fast, taking it easy. And then all of a sudden, and uh, you know you hear like on the news and that, the driver lost control of his vehicle. And I always think, how do you lose control of your vehicle? Well, this is how it happens. All of a sudden, my bike was just weaving right and left. The handlebars were doing nothing. And I veered onto the oncoming traffic. The car coming towards me, luckily, wasn't looking at his phone. and was looking where he's going. And we switched lanes and passed on the opposite lanes to each other. <laughs> and then my bike veered back onto my lane. And at that point, it just flipped. And I high-sided off the bike. And I've always said, gloves before helmet, you, you touch the ground with your hands and you do with your helm, uh, with your head. I didn't have a chance. The first thing that hit the ground was my face uh, with a full face helmet. And I don't know if I lost consciousness. I'm not entirely sure. But I was laying at the side of the road. I looked up. There were orange blinking hazard lights from both sides of the road because the traffic had stopped. Both of my panniers had exploded. The contents of my panniers were across the entire road. And from laying on the ground, I looked up and saw this. And I looked at my body to see what was still there and what worked. And slowly, I realized that everything was intact, blooded, scraped, um, road rashed, although I was wearing pretty good protective clothing. But nevertheless, I, I rolled along the road. Anyway, the guy behind me was uh, an English teacher. So he spoke, uh, remind you, this is Mexico. Was So he spoke perfect English. And he said, um, I wondered what you were doing. <laughs> said, Me too. <laughs> so what has happened, the front tyre had blown and the reason it had flipped was because the tube came out and jammed between the caliper and the disc. So the front wheel then seized and I had a flat, like aluminium rims, I had a flat spot on my rim where it had gone along the road like ski without, without turning. Anyway, the truck driver I'd overtaken stopped and um, help me get. I'm, I'm sort of worried about my possessions, but there was no need to. Everybody helped me gather up all my stuff. My panniers are now both diamond shaped because the bike has flipped and landed on both of them. So we stuffed stuff in my panniers, kind of bang, uh, bungee them together. Couldn't possibly seal them. I had a spare tube, so the front wheel came off and uh, to put another tube on it. 
In the meantime, an ambulance just came past and stopped. He was just passing. I had medical insurance, but they stopped, put me in the back, bandaged up my knee really conscientiously. And then I showed him my elbow, which is also bleeding. I sort of got this look, which sort of said, don't push your luck, mate. That ain't that bad. (laughs) 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 My elbow's bleeding. Please fix it too. (laughs) So, um, So then got fixed up. Uh, but the truck driver insisted that now he follow me to my destination, well, not my destination, but the next town where I'm going to stop because I am shaking. And so after this quite horrific, definitely without doubt, the scariest accident I've ever had, I've hurt myself more, but I've never looked at an oncoming car with absolutely no control of my vehicle thinking, this is it, it's over. And so this is replaying in my head. And... I've got this bloody great truck right up my ass for my protection, following me, <laughs> pushing me to the next town where I then find a mosquito-ridden, horrible, squalid room where I can just lay down, look at my wounds and think, though, this is the next life because I just lost the last one. That was just so good. So what I learned, I don't exactly know what it was. And the only thing that was pointed out that it could have been is that the valve nut was too tight. You're supposed to have some play um, so that, like, why are you supposed to have play so that if the tire moves a little bit and takes the tube with it, it doesn't rip the valve out of the tube? So I will have an, an argument on that, but anyway. Okay, well, I, I, I'm not saying this is why it happened. All I'm saying is that's the only possible reason i can come up with uh the tie was good and continued to be good it was a good tie not a cheap ass tire and uh so i don't really know why it happened and i and i wasn't being i wasn't speeding i wasn't being impatient i had plenty of time so that was one near miss why do you think that happened what what was the tubing tube looking like was the valve stem ripped out yeah, yeah, it was. I've still got it as a souvenir. Yeah, but it'd be ripped okay. out if it caught anyway. I mean, if it flopped yeah. out sideways. Right? Oh, yeah, I would expect. I mean, if it's locked in and it got ripped out, sure. I mean, you could have had a small nail, could have been a bad tube, which just punctured. It's could have been rubbing on the tire on a bit of damage on the inside at a tender spot. It's a number of things could have caused it. It's hard to say. Yeah, but, but, yeah. yeah. Tube, tube, tube tires will roll off the rim anyway. I've, I've had it happen a couple of times. So it's oh, tubeless yeah. tires are far safer, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as soon as they go flat, of course. I mean, it makes sense. I never thought of it jamming, though. Yeah, the tire no. runs back and forth, and if you haven't got a lot of room, the tire can jam and lock up. And if you've got a low fender, it can jam and do all kinds of bad things. Yeah. On the, on the valve stem, my recommendation is if you're riding on the street at 30 pounds or greater or even 25 pounds or greater pressure, then you should have the valve stem nut tight against the rim. For off-road, we run it with the valve stem nut up against the valve cap. And the reason for that is we're running at very low pressure so that when you get into a situation where at low pressure, you're accelerating or braking hard, the tire can rotate on the rim. And the valve stem, if it's not locked down, will then start turning to an angle. And you can see that angle. You can say, ah, it's starting to turn. I need to fix that. Whereas if the valve stem is locked tight, then you won't know that and you will rip it out. So off-road, valve stem nut against the cap so that you can see that it's rotating. 
And at higher pressures, 30 PSI or so, you do not have any risk of the tire turning on the rim. So lock the nut against the rim. And the reason for that is if you have the valve stem nut up against the cap on street conditions, the valve stem will vibrate back and forth. And I've seen valve stems actually cut through from vibrating against the rim. So you don't want it vibrating against the rim at speed, so you lock the nut down. And that's the purpose of the nut. That's the purpose of the nut. Mm-hmm. Graham, okay. um, that, that's that's tough to. I mean, that's that's an accident. I mean, did, did you? Was there anything in that you learned? <laughs> well, just yeah, just now what, what Grant told me. It took, it took five years. <laughs> five years of laying know. awake at night, and now I know. <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't because I didn't really. I, but it was horrific, and I rode all the way back to Denver with my legs stuck out like a jousting pole because I couldn't bend my knee. And uh, and with it replaying through my head again and again and again, you know, I might take mounting twisties, leaning it hard. What if it had happened then? You know, and unlike Sam, there wouldn't be a boulder to stop me. Um, so it, it, it really shattered my confidence. The bike got sold and it eventually, luckily having a very short memory, it, it, it finally I could get back on a bike and, and that memory wouldn't replay in my head. But for a long time it did and it, it, it really shook me. It was horrible. Yeah. Um, but on a lighter note, the other near miss, and this is a short story, um, was in Guatemala. And I was, what was I've been trying to remember why we were talking, what's that big lake in Guatemala? It begins with like Atama or Atlanta. <laughs> Atlan. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one, Atalan. So I was riding down towards the lake and there were, it was weekend, there were loads of youths on their mopeds, just wearing shorts and t-shirts, their girlfriends on the back in skimpy dresses. And there I am in all my gear with my two hot trousers with their armoured knees, with my two hot jacket with his armoured shoulders, with my gloves on, and I'm just winding down the road again, not trying to be fast, and as I'm going around a corner, the tyres slip out from under me. Don't know why, it wasn't diesel, not quite sure why, but the tyres slipped out from under me. And I thought, okay, it's going to be a low side. And just as I'm about to go down, the tyres grips, oh no, it's going to be a high side. (laughs) (laughs) And flipped up and landed on all fours like a little boy running to the ice cream van just bam and um and as i looked at what had happened i was it was a non-event because i was wearing all the gear everything was fine there were no bruises no cuts no impact uh the bike was a little bit broken mirrors and a few damages where it hit the ground but it was really for me, not a big deal. For any other person on a bike on that road that day wearing shorts and T-shirts, it would have been a horrible, nasty, road rash, bloody mess. But that, for me, was nothing. So lesson from that, and I, I don't do it all the time, but like Grant always says, all the gear all the time. And because of that, that was a non-event. Perfect. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about um, Shirley making the comment about watching Brian doing something. Um, you know, um, I was riding in Thailand with um, some friends and um, they were two up on the bike in front of me. It's perfect observation point. I, I kind of like being Taylor and Charlie. Um, anyway, Stefan was riding two up and we were doing all the usual traffic and people dodging stuff that you do in places like Thailand. Um, and all your senses are firing on all cylinders in that sort of environment, aren't they? Um, but the, the most you you get to the stage where 
the trucks and the people's unpredictability becomes predictable, doesn't it? You just sort of automatically working all the time. They're going to do something stupid. Um, but it's the animals um, that always get to me. And when we were talking earlier on about impatience being the cause of so many accidents, Stefan decided that actually he couldn't hack this run of trucks that we were in, in a town. And so he just um, pulled out and started scooting on past. Now, I think that dogs and chickens are related in Thailand because <laughs> the dogs have either got no road sense. They taste the same. It's funny you should say that, Graham. Oh, um, same. <laughs> they're either um, just got no brain, road sense at all or um, they sit by the side of the road and they're literally playing chicken. Oh, right, okay, that's a narrow gap coming up, or here's a motorcyclist, let's see if we can make it across. And this dog just literally got up, I was watching, he got up, didn't look, just boom, straight across the road, and bang into the, into the side of the front wheel of Stefan's um, bike, and of course, straight down, um, massive, massive wobble. And the thing was, this was um, Stefan's new girlfriend's first day on a motorcycle. Oh! <laughs> And they had a blowout that day too, so that was quite a christening for her. Mm. I wonder yeah, if they're but, still together, travelling two up on a motorcycle. Um, they lasted about four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. Yeah, she blew him out. <laughs> Not learning from your mistake. We yeah. were riding with friends in Vietnam, and um, uh, uh, Greg and his son were on a motorcycle in front of us. And we're going winding up this steep pass heading up towards Sapa, I think, in northern Vietnam. And there was a truck coming down the other way, a, a, a semi-trailer that needed a bit of space. So Greg stops and decides to go on the inside onto a bit of dirt. So we, we stop and wait for this truck to come down, and Greg, getting a little bit impatient, rides along the dirt, promptly falls into a hole and ends up upside down in a bush with the wheels vertical. So we yell out, are you okay, are you okay? And his son's, all we could see was a, a hand and thumb come up out of the bush. So that, that was okay. So we, we get off our bike, have a bit, bit of a laugh, and there's a, there's a little old Vietnamese guy on his little step through, parked up behind the, um, the semi-trailer looking at us. So he sits there and lights up a smoke. So Greg gets back on his bike. We, we mounted him back up, and... Um, they decided to take off again, and he moved about three feet and did exactly the same thing and fell in the same hole and <laughs> fell upside down. And this Vietnamese guy on the other side of the road, he just about fell off his step through laughing so much at these stupid round eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes your brain can get sort of stuck. I was riding in a, in a race once and uh, came into a corner offline, and hit this giant bump <clears throat> and got all out of shape, just like all over the road. It was all I could do to hang on to it. Just about needed a change of underwear. Went around the next lap and did exactly the same thing in the same place again, twice in a <laughs> row. And my only excuse is I was still in shock that I survived it. <laughs> twice. <laughs> my my brain wasn't working yet. <laughs> See if you could do it again. <laughs> well, the best part was that the guy that was chasing me said afterward, I saw you do that twice in a row and I thought if you're gonna if you're if you want the win that bad, you can have it. 
<laughs> well, I thought when we were we we were going to talk about these stories that we would have some sort of communal lesson that was learned that we would be able to say. So from all this, we deduce that you should, but there's not. There's no well, there lesson here. Don't, don't ride motorbikes. They're really, really dangerous. Oh, is that the lesson? <laughs> <laughs> Pay attention. Don't be so impatient. Um, Learn your lesson. When I was starting to ride, I was crossing a bridge somewhere, I think it was in Seattle, and I've been riding for like six months, and I'm on the highway, putting along on my 250, and a car decides to move into my lane. I, I ended up kicking the car door in order because otherwise I was going to be off the side of the bridge and into the water. And this woman driving just, just ah, freaked out and moved away. And looking back, I absolutely know what my, what my um, mistake was. I was parallel with her back wheel, mm. effectively invisible. Yeah, the blind spot. So the lesson is yeah, make sure you can see the driver's face yeah. or be in front of them so they can see you. And, and that was an early on lesson that has stuck with me really well. Don't trust well, that they can see you because they well, can't. When I, when I nearly had my head on in Mexico, I could definitely see the driver's face. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it doesn't work across the board. We know that now. <laughs> no. So, Graham, can you remember the expression that was on his face? How wide did his eyes get? <laughs> it, it, oh, it was so quick. All I, rem I do remember looking at his face and seeing that he was looking at me. And that was everything, the fact that he was looking at me. And so many people drive distracted these days that my saviour was that he was looking at me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. We got a, an email from Nick Vicente, who um, is, is, I guess he's, a, he's considering going to three wheels for a motorcycle. He says he's interested in the group's thought on Urals as far as long-distance rigs. He wants to know... Um, if anyone's seen them on the road or they know about uh, any sort of serious long distance trips being done on Urals. And um, he says there's a ton of conflicting information out there, but he can't, uh, he can't fit his dog on his motorcycle. So as uh, he's, and, and maybe his kids. So he's thinking that maybe this, this, I guess the third wheel and the, and the bucket on the side might help. Um, he also has a note in here about Brian and Shirley about some Auss Aussie beer, did you read that? <laughs> All I can say is if he drinks Chief Stout, no wonder he didn't think it was very good. Um, there's plenty of good Aussie beers and there's plenty of good Aussie Bloody Marys. <laughs> so you yeah. should try anything but Chief Stout and Foster's and then he'll probably find a good Aussie beer. Yeah, there's plenty of them, Nick. There's plenty of good ones and uh, Stout isn't one of them, that's for sure. <laughs> So, mate, um, yeah, as far as um, rigs go, I've got a mate who's who sold his 1200GS uh, to buy a Ural. And um, then I sold him one of my old motorbikes, so he had a motorbike to ride as well. Um, but he, the, <laughs> we could take he, that different he, ways. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. But he goes and does a lot of rallies and carries a lot of gear. So he decided that uh, a Ural was the go for him. And over here, we have a guy that takes people on uh, training courses so they know how to ride a sidecar properly because it is completely different to riding a motorcycle. Yeah. Mm. And um, 
And Russ reckons it's the best thing he ever did. And because of that particular course, he actually went out and bought a Ural. So I don't know about their longevity. Um, you know, they had a pretty poor reputation here for a while, but I think as time's gone on, they've got better and better and better. If you don't want to travel at a zillion miles an hour or go around corners on an angle, maybe it's the go for some people. Well, well, Sometimes. for those who don't know, the, the Ural, it's a Russian motorcycle, and I think it's based on, what is it, a 30s BMW design? Uh, yeah, of engine? 32, I think it was. 32, right. So it's, um, and, and for, for many years, it's, um, you know, made in the same factory and, and not updated. And from what I understand, you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, we, we had Carla King on many years ago, uh, not many years ago, a few years ago, I should say, um, to talk about, uh, she rode around the United States in a Ural and, and wrote a book, um, American Borders, I think, is what it's called. Yep. And I remember in, the, in, the, in that interview her saying about it breaking down. But but I think what it is is the the, um, the Ural is still made, or was, made in Russia. It's shipped to uh, North America, and then there's distributors there who do some refitting and stuff. Does, does anyone know about that? Yeah, they do a lot of refitting, actually. Um, I was a Dnieper dealer in... That would be the early 80s. And the Dnieper is an equivalent to the Ural. There was a Ural and the Dnieper and there was something else. I can't remember what it was offhand. And they were absolute, total garbage. The They came in a crate, giant wood crate that was, well, you could live in it. It was amazing. And wrapped in cosmoline and they were so well packaged and they, they would last and they were designed to last, stored in this crate for years out in Siberia. But the motorcycle itself was the worst part of the whole package. <laughs> I mean, literally, we were replacing push rods because they shrunk. We were replacing push rods every 2,000 miles. Yeah. And points and condensers and everything about them, they were junk of the worst order. But they've come a long, long, long way. And with refitted electronics and uh, carburetors and brakes and all kinds of things that the aftermarket or the distributors, I should say, the distributors are doing with the ones that get to them out of Russia, um, they've come a long way. We've got a couple here, Miles and Tracy here in British Columbia. Actually, sorry, they're in Alberta. They've ridden a Ural all over the place, like thousands and thousands of miles. And they say it's never broken down. Yeah, it's been very reliable. They've been very happy with it. They highly recommend it. Um, it's great. They, they love it. So and they, yeah, they, 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 seem, they seem to be built for that, Grant. And you know, yep. you look at the wheels. All the wheels are the same size, and there's yeah. a spare wheel. Yeah, so, so you just get a flat tire. You can change any one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the other thing is, um, uh, you can, they only make them in two-wheel drive in um, for, in left-hand configuration. So yeah. here, you can't you can't get two-wheel drive. Right. Um, but I remember the first Horizons meeting we went to in um, Britain. We came. There was a couple who had a Yamaha XJ900 with a sidecar, but the sidecar frame was in su- mounted in such a way that when they were travelling on the other side of the road, they could flip it over and remount the the, um, the wow. body of the sidecar, so that that it would always be in the right position depending on what side of the road they were riding on. Just facing in the wrong direction. <laughs> 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 or it was upside down, one or the other. Graham, no, 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 no. you take the body off. Graham, oh, <laughs> you put the body on. That's such a, that's such a clever idea, isn't it? Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I, I just would not fancy sitting in the chair on the wrong side. Um, yeah. you, you just have everything heading towards you right smack, and you'd, I, I'd feel defenseless. 
you are, that is my one and only experience in a sidecar was um, back in the 80s, I used to go to these Harley rallies and there was this, uh, we attended in the UK a lot by American servicemen who brought their Harleys over. And there was this girl actually, and I had to go back, I was helping organize this Harley rally and I had to go back to mine to pick something up and she said, I'll take you in the, in the sidecar. And it was American one, so the sidecar was on the outside of the road facing the oncoming traffic. And she went to overtake this van, and I could see there was something coming. And like you say, Sam, absolutely defenseless, sat in this vehicle, all to have dual controls at least. (laughs) (laughs) But but going back to to you, my my only experience, and I haven't ridden one, um, was when I did the trip to Mongolia, and I met some French people who had two Urals, uh, it was quite an emotional trip for them. They were supposed to be three of them, uh, but their friend had recently, just before they set off the trip, he died in a, I think it was a mountaineering accident. So they were doing the trip with his girlfriend, uh, it was sort of a memorial to him, uh, and because they said, you know, he would have he would he would have wanted us to do it anyway. So and I met them in this is this hotel in, in Kazakhstan, I think it was. And, and commented on their beautiful socket set, this huge, big, comprehensive set, as they were doing a little bike maintenance. And I said to them, wow, that's a really nice socket set you got there. He goes, yes, and we use it every day. <laughs> <laughs> but they got the bikes from the factory. That's where they started. And they ah, said, you know, the engineering was appalling. They had to work all the time. I still think that if you're, certainly if you're riding in that area, it's like riding Enfield in India. It's a great bike of choice because there are spare parts everywhere. And, and like Brian says, if you're not interested, if you don't want to do zillion miles an hour or sort of grind your knee on some corners, it's not a bad choice of bike, in my opinion, having never ridden one. <laughs> I, I, Graham, I, I totally in agreement with you. I, I've never ridden one, um, but I've been a passenger in one. And it's actually not bad being a passenger. But I've got quite a few friends who've um, got Euros and sidecars. Um, and they all love them. Um, Jim mentioned Carla earlier on. Well, there's a couple of friends in the UK, Luke Whiting and Austin and Lois um, did a trip in um, a, a, around the United States in a, a Ural and sidecar and loved it. And another mate, Kevin Lawler. And they bas- they all basically say, look, you're going to expect to travel um, fairly gently, um, 50 to 60 um, miles an hour. Um, but, you know, when you're overlanding, how often are you going faster than that anyway? Um, Kevin made you laugh. He said, um, posted speed limits are a bit more of a target than a limit. <laughs> yeah. they, they all say, you know, handling's very different. Um, it's, it's just something that you learn. Um, fuel consumption tends to be pretty poor because you are heaving a fairly great big lump around. And they all say, look, you just got to do your servicing. Um, you can't afford to miss servicing. Um, the downsides that they're saying is, well, you can't filter in traffic. Um, if you're on potholed roads, um, then inevitably something's going to hit the, um, hit a hole because you've got three wheels that you're playing with. But they say the stability fantastic river crossings, muddy roads and sand and all of that sort of stuff. Kevin pointed out something that I hadn't thought about, and that, of course, is any rider of any height can use a Ural and sidecar. Um, I can't remember how tall Kevin is, but I'm guessing he's probably getting on for six foot. And I know his girlfriend's only just over five foot because I've seen her and Birgit standing next door to each other. And they both ride their outfits. And 
not a problem at all. What, what do you mean, um, any rider of any height? What, what does that? How does that make a difference? Well, because it's firmly planted on the ground, and you don't have to get your feet on the ground, so it doesn't matter how tall oh, you are. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah, but they, I don't think they're particularly it. tall anyway, well, are they? No, they're not. They're no, they're not. Yeah. yeah. One of the very important things to remember: I had a friend who had an outfit, and uh, as red as a, a two-wheel motorbike, and having got off his outfit and then taken out his two-wheel motorbike, he got to the traffic lights and didn't put his feet down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, I've heard of that before. Yeah. And what was the lesson learned there? <laughs> we um, we actually travelled through. Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan with a Canadian guy who was riding a GS with a um, mural sidecar attached to it. And when we've got someone travelling with us, I try and look in the mirrors to make sure we haven't lost them if Brian's being impatient. Um, but I didn't have to do that with Damien because I could hear the sidecar falling apart um, <laughs> as we went through all the potholes and rutted, terrible roads that um, that are Central Asia. So from what I understand, the biggest problem with Urals and sidecars is the UDF. Have you guys come across this? The UDF. Hmm. The UDF. Apparently, it's it's a big problem. It's called the Ural Delay Factor because everybody wants to speak to you. Yes, absolutely. Well, That's some the, people would say uh, you have plenty of time to talk like. because while you're fixing it, people come up and ask you what it is. <laughs> it's funny because guy, it does. It has such a reputation as a, as a vehicle that breaks down a lot. Um, and it seems to me, and I have never had one, I've never ridden one, um, but it seems to me that that um, is, is not maybe not as true now as what it was. And Grant, you said about them, you know, retrofitting yeah. things, the same thing they did with the Lattas as well. When they come over, they have to make a bunch of changes to get them ready for market uh, here in North America. But um, so it sounds like they've done some things to bring up the reliability. But I, I think that probably from from what I understand, we've had a few people on the show that, that have ridden Urals and, and certainly more that have ridden with sidecars. But as far as the Urals reliability goes, um, it seems that people sort of expect, as what Sam said, you know, they expect to travel slower and they expect that maybe it's not going to be super reliable. They're going to have some little problems here and there. It's almost part of the part of the experience. Yeah, it's a, it's a mental attitude, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you're going to slow down. I mean, that, that's exactly right, Grant. You can carry so much more when you've got an outfit, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and why not? Um, I've seen people pull almost full kitchens out of their sidecar outfits and things like that. And yeah, why not? I met a guy at, um, at um, Overland Expo uh, West last year. Um, his name's Mark Tetro. Um, and he runs a, a shop in um, Prescott, Arizona. Absolutely super guy. He's got this huge handlebar moustache, so he sort of stands out like a, um, you know, he really stands out. Um, and I got to like this guy very much for two reasons in the, in the first stages. And the first reason was um, it was it was really cold in Flagstaff um, last year. I mean, you're quite high altitude and people turn up there having ridden through Utah and the deserts and everything else. And um, they've been in the warm and then all of a sudden you're out to Flagstaff and the temperature can drop dramatically. And people were turning up there without the right gear for camping at that in those temperatures. And Mark, bless him, he was in his motorcycle, in his Ural outfit, buzzing around the camping site, picking up sheets of cardboard for people to put under their sleeping mats and hunting people out extra blankets from various different places around. And I just thought, yeah, that seems to be 
very much the Ural attitude is very much a case of helping everybody else out. And the other thing that made me laugh about this guy was that he always lends Carla um, a Ural and sidecar outfit. And they have what they call the ladies' ride. And last year they broke the record by getting 18 people to travel on this year old and sidecar. <laughs> so, yeah, you can carry a bit of load. You're talking on one, one sidecar, one, one year old. Exactly. Yep. I don't yeah, think that's people. very safe. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can find a photo, I'll send it to you. So there you go, a very thorough and positive response from six people who have never ridden one. (laughs) (laughs) I'd actually like to have a crack at doing that Ural course in Australia. I reckon that'd be a lot of fun, actually, from what I hear. Which Ural course? You're taught to ride them properly and ride them in uh, our outback and bush areas, which I think would be a lot of fun. Well, yeah, and especially with the two-wheel drive on it, I mean, there, there'd be there'd be some huge advantages there. I've I've got a fair amount of experience with the Nikers, not much with the Urals, but um, riding them, as long as you have, like Sam says, the right attitude, and you're willing to go slow and take your time, and kind of step back in time. If you think back to the '50s and how you would travel then, I think. You can have an absolutely wonderful time on a year old Dnieper or whatever it is, or sidecars in general. Just relax, understand what it is, and go with that whole ethos of what they are and how they work, and they're wonderful. But if you're expecting something that's going to zip along and stay with traffic and you're going to have fun zipping around corners, forget it. Not going to happen. Grant, you'd be the only one that could remember riding in the 50s, I think. (sighs) You know, people do make quite a lot of modifications to the Urals and and sidecars, and I think that that's one of the things that people like about them, that they are moddable. Um, Luke has replaced um, the Ural engine with a BMW airhead engine. Um, He just says it works better um so why not um and uh, kevin's done quite a few changes to his and he was saying to me you know they're incredibly easy to service no computers or traction control or electric suspension or anything else and his comment to me was well you know um a, a brand new adventure motorcycle is far less likely to go wrong um but if it does when you're in the middle of nowhere um then quite often you could be well and truly stuck but with a ural and sidecar you can always fix it and i thought yeah yeah that's true has, has anyone seen the the electric ural they've bought out one that is actually an electric um ural which they've mm. shown it shows but i haven't seen it yet no is this from europe yeah yes oh, yes wow. i've only read about so, it Hmm, that'd be interesting. How, how about the, the, the electric Harley Davidson, the new bike? Graham's getting an order. Chai, chai. 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 Oh, just just the champagne's coming. The last bottle ran out. <laughs> oh, jeez. The hardships. <laughs> no, I, I thought the idea of room service was they bring what you order, but they knock on the door to confirm what you ordered. <laughs> so this is being paid for on those credit cards, is it? 
<laughs> well, the point is, we're leaving tonight. What are they going to do? Deport us? We can just do a run on. Just don't go. Sorry, there. Jim, we're off topic. <laughs> <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about the electric Ural, um, and I, I was saying about the the, the new e-bike from Harley Davidson. Has anyone seen that? Brian, have you ridden I, yeah. one? No, I haven't. But um, I've got a friend who races bikes, and uh, he raced uh, in the electric uh, bike um, challenge at the Isle of Man. And he reckons, um, not the, the Harley, he was racing something else, but he said they are unbelievable the way they deliver power. And there's like three moving parts in an electric bike. There's nothing to them. But uh, obviously range is the problem. And, and the Zero, which is um, probably the better known one than the Harley, you're talking about maximum range about 180 kilometres on a highway, uh, 350, 60 kilometres in the city. And then you, it takes you an hour to recharge. Pretty hard for someone travelling, I think, um, to, comp- uh, to comprehend that. But we first yeah. saw an electric bike over in India, surely, when we stayed um, at the Maharaja's guest house. solar bike. Solar power bike. Solar power bike, yeah, that's right. There's people doing all sorts of things. There's a, there's a guy in New Zealand who's developed a two-wheel drive electric motorcycle for use on farms. Now, how sensible is that? You're trickling around on your farm in amongst the mud and the slush and cow poo, and uh, you've got a two-wheel bike, and it's electric, so no running costs, really. Well, you mentioned the zero. Uh, the zero, I mean, although the, the you don't have a lot of mileage in the, or I was going to say in the tank, but in the, in the battery, my son was down uh, test riding the zeros in Vancouver, and he was telling me about them. But if you live in a place like, if you if you live and work in the city, for instance, you've got tons of distance there, and you plug it in when you get to work. It's very practical, and you're talking, you know, really sense, depending on where yeah. you are, of course, for electricity, but very, very inexpensive to operate, not so much purchase, but to operate. Yeah, and there's a new one on the market that a, a, a guy by the name of Mark Truman who uh, does all the way out stuff for Jaguar, you know, in their think tank, he, they've got a thing called an Arc Victor, and but they're only making 355 units this year because they're valued at 90,000 pounds. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, zero to 60 in 2.7 seconds and a top speed of 150 mile an hour. But, mm. you know... Uh, you know, that's obviously on the way out there scale. So who knows when it's going to be the next thing. There's another Australian company, isn't there, called um, Savic Motorcycles. Have you come across them, Brian? Uh, No, I haven't seen Savic. Um, Apparently they were displaying um, a cafe racer at the Melbourne Moto. Um, Oh, no, I missed it, mate. I didn't see that. Mm, No, it's interesting. I hadn't come across that one before. There's, a, there's another mob called Fly Free who are making one too, and they, they've got one called a Smart Desert, which is a scrambler-style one for, uh, I think this is US dollars, $6,390 or $6,400. But, you know, a top speed of 50 mile an hour and two batteries will give you 100 miles. But, again, it's the charge time. You're going to yeah. do 100 miles and sit down for three hours. I don't think they're Char- quite there yet. Charge time is changing dramatically. Yes. Um, it's, it's really interesting to watch um, what's been happening with that. Um, Graham and I have both been talking to Paul Blazard, who's um, one of the 
the UK's real general expert on electric motorcycles. And he was telling us about something called the DigiNow, um, which is um, a supercharger. And um, you can charge a motorcycle um, in, in zippity-doo-dah time where it used to be, um, you know, hours, um, all nights, that sort of thing. Um, you can do it in an hour and you can head off and you can, st you can then ride another 350, 400 kilometers. And people are doing it now. The ranges are increasing quite dramatically. Um, just, just, just describe zippity doo dah time for me, please, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> look, at, look at this pick. <laughs> Zero is actually saying now that their their newer models you can recharge up to six times faster, but and it's 160 kilometers travel per hour of charging. So much better than it used to be. It used mm -hmm. to be like three or four hours charging to get that kind yeah. of thing. So it's much better, but it's still got a little ways to go. But there there are people who have done some really big trips. Uh, Trui Hanui, who is a Belgian girl, who's, she's been coming to Horizons meetings. Oh, I remember her back around about 2000 when she first started coming. Uh, and she rode uh, zero, a 2014 zero all the way from Belgium um, to Istanbul and back, 4,500 miles total. And she averaged 150, 155 miles per day. That's not bad. Yeah, it's not so bad. But we had Churi on the show, actually, uh, and, and she was saying, uh, from what I remember, she was saying that she had no trouble finding places to charge it because that would have been something that I would have thought would, would be a big issue. Now, I, I you, know, she, you know, she went in a certain area, but um, she would plug it in anywhere and no one seemed to refuse her. It was just no problem. Yeah. You know, yeah, the people don't see it as cost. There's no, there's no cost to somebody plugging something into their wall. They just don't see that. So, yeah, I think you can get away with a lot of it. The more I think about it, the more I think that actually, like riding a Ural inside car, you've got to have a change of mindset. Yeah. And the change of mm. mindset, and Truy talks about this, um, is that every time you stop for a coffee or for lunch or to go off and have a look at the view, you just automatically find yourself somewhere to plug in. Um, and you just never let your bike get down to nothing. Um, and... Yeah, you just travel more slowly. But we don't travel that quickly when we're overlanding anyway, do we? No. Except for those no. Harry Dacon moments, of course. <laughs> well, Sam, with that, with that thought, with that thought of, of changing your mindset, all of you, everybody, with that thought of changing your mindset, do you guys think that you could take an electric bike and do a round-the-world trip now? Like, Would it seem practical or would it just be too far out there still? I think you can, and it's already been done. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it's certainly doable. You just have to, as Sam was just saying, adjust your mindset onto how you do it. I mean, when you really think about it, 155 miles a day, that's actually doing pretty good for just about anywhere. I mean, there's days when you're going to want to do more. And there's days when you're going to want to do less. But as long as you're not in a hurry, you're not trying to set any speed records you're, and you're not constrained by time. And, of course, what do we always tell everybody? Less distance, more time. Um, perfectly usable. Hang on. Hang on. Somebody at the door here. Uh, Graham's breakfast. Yeah, let's let's wait and, f and see what's going on there. You pay now with your credit card. <laughs> your credit card's no damn good. What do you reckon he's got? Bread and jam. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't have time for the microphone on pause. I'm honestly not doing it for effect, but you know what they're like. These impatient <laughs> We're enjoying this. What have you so got what there? Have you got? Omelets, bread and jam. Uh, Tom, Tom, no, I'm very responsible, bags. actually. I'm 
I'm just having a black coffee um, because uh, my whiskey's run out. Oh, get this, off topic, totally. Got off the, had an all-day bus ride yesterday, very long story, but it was supposed to be three hours, ended up being all day. And when we finally stopped at the wrong side of Delhi in rush hour, we saw a metro station. So it's like, so let's just get on the metro and get to where we're going. It's going to be far quicker and cheaper in the traffic. The great thing about the metro is you don't have to haggle the price. It's pre-approved. So um, I go, but it's a very strict system. And there's a women's line and a men's line. And so I split up from a girlfriend. And then you have to go through, um, you know, one of those uh, bleeping things like they have at airports and put your luggage on a conveyor belt. Well, I've got a bottle of whiskey in my luggage. Wasn't worried about it. Didn't even know you couldn't take it on there. And then security came up and said, you have wine, sir? And I said, no. Because it wasn't wine. And <laughs> Smuggler. <laughs> and so I got a, a yoga mat attached to my backpack and that would come off in the x-ray machine. So I'm a, I know the soldier is standing, or well, the police, whatever he was with his gun, is standing right over me. But I wasn't looking at him and I'm putting my yoga mat back on the side of my backpack. And uh, so then, then he says, uh, you have wine in there? And I said, no. And he said, let me look. And I just opened the top of my backpack and he saw the top and I said, it's for shaving. And he said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was quick. (laughs) And you probably weren't lying because you probably do drink that when you shave. (laughs) (laughs) Graham, you're in India now. We were talking about electric bikes. Could you imagine riding an electric bike around India for your, your holiday right now? Would that work? Let me just say, I did, I contacted Paul Blessard, who is an aficionado on this subject, and he, a mind of information, and you know those people, you've probably got a friend like this, who, on his chosen subject, gives you such thorough, comprehensive, massive more information than you really wanted, because he's so passionate about it. So I read loads, I learnt loads, and I made loads of notes, but this is all about 10 days ago, and I've lost all my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, Graham, I've got your notes. Honestly, Jim, I did my research, but my dog ate my homework. (laughs) But anyway, to answer your question, as you've probably heard in the background, there's non-stop horns. Everybody drives on their horn in India. And we, we rented little mopeds to ride around. And even though you're on a beautiful, empty country road and as a pedestrian, if you ride past that pedestrian without honking your horn, you will freak the hell out of them because they expect to hear a horn. Everybody does. You drive on your horn. It's not rude. It's not aggressive. It's simply, here I am. Now, you don't even have an engine uh, sound on an electric bike. So one of many, many things that I researched and made notes on, but the silent aspect means that you people are going to have to tune in their ear, pedestrians, other drivers, everything, or at least change their senses so they're more prepared for electric vehicles silently passing them. Because in other countries, it's not so acceptable to drive on your horn all the time. Unless you do that thing that we used to do when we were kids where you put bits of plastic that clack in the spokes as you go along. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's what I would do, Graham. Playing card and a clothes peg. Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, aren't they, aren't they having a um, an electric bike um, GP this year at the rounds of the MotoGP? Yep, there's going to be five of them. Yeah, that's what I thought. Watch. Yeah, yeah. We haven't announced the teams or the schedule yet, but it's coming. Mm. So that'll be pretty spectacular to watch. Absolutely silent motorcycles screaming by at 150 miles an hour. Mm, it's going to be interesting. 
Will yeah, Van still watch it? Mm. Yeah, that's the thing. My party. friend Cam said was you know it, it's just no noise. It's just wind noise. It's all you hear. Yeah. But haven't Harley done something about that? Haven't they um, with their bike? Are they not adding a sound? That's and what are, I heard. Did I read somewhere that you can buy an app that you've attached to your electric motorcycle and you can choose what sound you want your bike to sound like? <laughs> How would you feel about that? Uh, pretty fake, actually. Kind of silly, yeah, wouldn't you? Bizarre, you're using it? up electricity. You're wasting juice. It's going to reduce your distance. But then there goes my heated vest. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, but you'll be traveling slowly. And, and your music, and your music while you're traveling. Yeah. GPS. Mm. I don't know. I'm in favor. I think it's coming, and I think we can't get away from it. You've got to get used to the idea that 50 years from now, I don't think there'll be much in the left in the way of gas vehicles. You're saying 50 years from now, Grant. Back in the 1900s, the Victorians swore blind that if a human being travelled over 30 miles an hour, or say on a train, when, when train technology was coming in, they would suffocate. And yep. they were sure this was going to happen. And we, we're all living proof that that doesn't happen. So I am old school and I don't think that electric, well, electric bikes don't appeal to me and I don't, I can't see it happening. But it probably will anyway. And, and it doesn't really excite me very much. And well, all my questions to Paul and all my sort of, um, you know, what about this? And don't you think that he, he is very passionate and, and possibly a little biased? So I mean, he cut my questions down with these um, sort of very overstated, well, what about this? And, <laughs> and you're wrong on that. <laughs> well, I wouldn't expect it, anything else from him. But, if it's going um, to be 50 years from now, it's not going to be our problem, boys. No, it's not. No. No. Right. And the thing no, is, you, if you grow up with it, if you're, you know, it's something you see right from being little, it won't be a big deal. But it makes me wonder if the passion for motorcycles will be gone. Maybe motorcycles will be gone, but the passion for them will be gone. Even even transportation, because I mean, I know this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but if you look at the, the autonomous vehicles out now and the technology that's coming with them, it makes you wonder if transportation is not going to be the thing that it has been up till now, or at least in, in, in recent, you know, 50 years sort of thing or, or 80 years. Years, if it's going to change to just become something that you do, it's it's to get somewhere. Well, I, 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 I mean, look, going I back to trains, look at, look at look at the old trains. I mean, the, the big old steam trains had such character and individuality. Then they all went electric, and they're all really bland. And no, I mean, there are a few oh, passionate people out there still. Look at the look at the electric chains in Japan. I mean, these things are just sleek and gorgeous and efficient and just phenomenal. And, uh, the first electric motorcycle that I, I've ever come across was um, back in 1911, so 100 years ago. And at that time, it had a range of about 75 miles, and it had three speeds, four miles an hour, 15 miles an hour, or 35 miles an hour. It didn't do anything in between those. You just clicked it into that and off it went. I've ridden um, an electric bicycle and I, it was a mountain bike and I was blown away by this thing. The acceleration, the speed, the smoothness, um, just absolute buzz out of this thing. I could not stop smiling. I have to try um, an electric motorcycle because I gather that all of the things that I had been excited by in the electric bicycle are just there and that much better um, with an electric bike. You know, as far as riding around the world on them is concerned, think about this. 
developing world countries have got a real problem with um, power, especially mm. if they're not oil producers. Now, many of them, um, the, the fuel supply, which allows all of the, the, the goods to be transported around in the country, it's all petrol and diesel and all of that sort of stuff. And it's, it's one of the biggest drains of resources of developing world countries, unless, as I said, they're producing um, fuel for themselves. Kenya... Um, is an, a perfect example of this. 70% of Kenya's power is now from su sustainable energy sources, 70%. Wow. And there's um, a chap who started importing electric cars into Kenya and they're just taking off because they're so cheap to run, they're so cheap to maintain. Um, and as more and more of these vehicles are being produced, they're becoming cheaper and cheaper to buy. And I think it'll be the same with motorcycles. We see it happening all the time, don't we? Prototype first, first 150 motorcycles that get produced, they tend to be really expensive. But when you get to the sort of five and 600 um, being produced stage, then the prices tend to be that much more reasonable because what well, you're spreading the price of the development and the technology and so on. I think it's going to happen. And I think it's going to be more interesting in the future, particularly when um, they can start solving things which make them um, less environmentally friendly than they are now, when they make them more environmentally friendly. Um, Barcelona is a city in Spain. It's, I think it's the second largest city in Spain. And they have this um, major ambition to make um, the city um, petrol product um, free within the next years. They want to have every vehicle that's being used in Barcelona down to electric vehicles. And they're already noticing the difference in um, the, the air pollution in the cities. And, you know, when Graham, for example, early on, was, you guys were talking about um, the pollution at the Taj Mahal, a lot of that is coming from um, the vehicles, um, vehicle fumes, the petrol and the diesel. Um, just imagine how clean the air is going to be um, if that has just cut dramatically. And I don't know. I, I, the more I've read, the more I've, I've become convinced about it. And yes, of course, they've got a long way to go with this. But I, yeah, I, I now want to ride an electric motorcycle. I want to try it now. Yeah. Myself. Like Grant yeah. said, that they have come a long way as far as charging and, and recharge times. But but Grant, you were you were going to say something there about uh, I think passion yeah. for transportation. Well. Regarding passion, I mean, I'm going to really throw the cat among the pigeons here, and I'm sure we're going to get a, a comment or two, but we're, we're used to thinking of passion and motorcycles and noisy and mechanical and oil dripping, and th that's all passion, right? And clattery bits and, and lots of gears. <clears throat> but then there's a lot of people who are extremely passionate about their motorcycling and ride them a lot, love them, and they ride things like, Goldwings and K1600s, those things are next door to electric in the way they feel, the way they sound. They're quiet. There's almost no noise. They're super smooth. Isn't that what an electric motorcycle is all about? Quiet, smooth, good power, lots of it when you want it. It's the same thing. And yet they're still passionate about those motorcycles, mm -hmm. which if you're a real petrol head and you like noise and clattery bits, they're horrible but people still love them. So I don't think that there's going to be that big a switch to an electric motorcycle because I think it's still about the wind in your face, the, the freedom of being on two wheels, it's getting out and going and not being in a car. And that on all of what that's all about, that means motorcycling. You're just getting away from 
the noisy bits. And I think that's okay. That's a good point. I mean, I mean, it sort of goes back to what Sam was saying about riding the the electric mountain bike. You know, the, the thrill of that. Yeah. Well, and the, and the instant acceleration of electric bikes is just something else. Well, with the Pike Peak, uh, Pikes Peak uh, hill climbs, the fastest ones are electric now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because they've got full instant, instant power. Yeah. Yeah, and and like I said, my son he he was test driving. He's done it a couple times. Uh, test ridden the the zeros, and um, he just he loves it. He, he's like if he had the money, he would get one right now. It, it just they're, they're, he thought they were just a fantastic ride, incredibly powerful, sporty, uh, a great feel, cheap to run. Like I said, all the things except for the initial cost, which you're going to have to pay being an early adopter at this point. Yeah, yeah, they're still a little on the expensive side. But they're cheap you know, to run, cheap, 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 cheap to run. Man, I wonder what your your hundred thousand mile uh, cost would be yeah. for that versus a, um, a petrol engine. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, you've got to worry about really is a drive system, whether it's a chain or a shaft, probably a chain tires, um, and a couple of brushes in an electric motor. You know, there's nothing yeah. to. It. I don't even simple, know if they have brushes, do they? I don't think I don't so. Know. No, don't no. I, I think you're really looking at no. tires, chain, and sprocket, and and or if it's not direct drive. Um, I mean, obviously, if something major could go wrong, and then the big thing is the battery. Once you know you go through the cycles of the battery, but they've got an incredible warranty on the on the zeros. I forget what it is now, but they've got an incredible warranty. That these the things they're the batteries they're making are lasting much longer, charging faster, and um, and I'm saying lasting longer as in not just the distance you're riding, but the longevity of the battery life itself, the overall life. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I meant by you know as, as they develop, um, and they make them more environmentally friendly and more functional and so on. Um, 2018, by the way, um, a chap called um, uh, Remo Clawitter set an electric record for the longest journey in 24 hours. He did 1,134 kilometres in 24 hours. Awesome! Wow. That's, what did he have for batteries? Yeah, um, if you look at the bike, though, it's just. This immense thing behind it of batteries. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's quite well, a weird-looking contraption. It's not your everyday vehicle. Graham, did you look up the, um, the storm wave? Um, those um, Dutch students from um, Eindhoven um, rode around the world with 2016. They had 24 batteries on this thing. <laughs> it, was, it, it was quite clever, but the thing looked like a monster. They set the battery so that it looked like a bit of a, a honeycomb. Um, where you would have the engine and the fuel tank and so on, there was this big honeycomb bank of, of batteries. Um, but they rode around the world, 17 countries. It can be done. Certainly your daily cost would be good. Well, the um, the, the Tesla cars, they're, they're getting incredible range. Yeah, they got a huge battery though. Yeah, yeah. But I just mean that the technology getting there, that was unheard of, you know, not very long ago, just a few years ago, really. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, none of this stuff's making any money yet. I and mean, zero doesn't make any money yet. Tesla doesn't make any money yet. Um, that's all to come. You know, the, the economies of scale have to kick in. You know, one of the things that I see is a bit of a problem now in, in mainstream um, countries, um, in, in developed Western countries. I mean, there are an increasing number of um, charging points um, available. But when I'm traveling around the UK and I'm seeing more and more of them, I'm beginning to slowly realize that actually um, you've got to have the right adapter and you've got to have the right card and all that sort of stuff. It's not like being able to pull into a Shell or an SO or a BP or anybody else and just go up to the the tank and fill up. You've actually got to be a member and have the right um, adapter. And I think that that's got to change before it starts being 
you know, that much more comfortable for everybody. We've got to have the same mindset that you're pulling into a normal petrol station. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that, and that's going to be pushed by governments. I think. I mean, I know here yep. in British Columbia, they've got uh, recharge stations at some um, really obscure spots as you go up Vancouver Island, and that's to try and get people to go there. You don't see any cars there. I mean, I think I've seen. I've only seen one or two cars charging uh, at the station local here, and um, but I mean, you've got to sort of get that. You know, it's uh, before you can get to the vehicles on the road. So it, it's got to work. But my thought process is you can only charge, I think, three cars at the local station. It doesn't take much before you're in a huge lineup at this point. Yeah. Well, it's all yeah. going to be demand, isn't it? If you've got three cars filling it up, then they're going to put in another one very quickly. So it, it will grow as the number of cars and motorcycles um, that, that need the charging stations. I mean, there's places here where you can park in a Safeway parking lot and guess what? There's charging station. That's yeah, that's everywhere in Norway. You, you, yeah. you, know, you just pull into a little town and there's uh, there'll be a hundred poles for people to put their uh, plug their Teslas in. And I think yep. we've discussed before the Tesla car over there is subsidised so much it's like thirty thousand dollars, you know, um, for a car. Uh, and so everyone's driving these electric cars. Okay. Great idea. Brian, um, Mongolia. The the most sold car in Mongolia is um, the Toyota Prius. Because it's subsidised yeah. by mm-hmm. the government and it's electric car, and yeah. they've got huge solar panel fields now and HUP and all of that sort of stuff. The EU is expecting to have two hundred thousand um, charging points by the end of next year. Wow! Mm-hmm. Yep. I wonder how many gas stations are there by comparison. Mm. Yeah, quite. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe we should move on to plugs where we're, um, time's flying by here. And um, we may as well wind things up fairly quickly. Graham, what do you have for plugs? I've got one big, big plug. Eureka, the audio book, is now available worldwide via all of those sources like, uh, uh, like uh, Amazon and iTunes and all the others. So now... Uh, you might have all gone off the boil a little bit because I was recording it in December and it was edited over Christmas and it went off to the distributor in January and I know it's February now, but it's ready. Remember all the hype? Remember what I said? Well, now you can get it. Um, and the other thing is, so I, I downloaded it, of course, because I wanted to say that <laughs> people who bought this also bought <laughs> Surgery Green Grass because I downloaded that you too. You bought your own book? Um, yeah, well, also, because I just wanted to make sure the files were all in the right order. We had a little problem with Insert Green the Grass because it was over 99 chapters long. The filing went a bit wrong. So I just wanted to check that and make sure it sounded okay. The prime reason for doing it was just to check the continuity of it and make sure it was all okay. What I wasn't expecting, and I'm totally blowing my own trumpet here, was how good it sounded. It's amazing what those sound engineers can do. I sound like a professional reader. I sound like I should be getting paid for it. It's amazing. <laughs> i got to so, hear this. Um, you have got to hear it. That's exactly the response that I wanted, Jim. <laughs> well, to so, blow it, help Graham blow his own trumpet, I bought his first one, and it's, it's bloody good. Wow. So um, I can't wait to get hold of a copy of the second one, Graham. Yeah, no, I'm really, really happy with the production and the way it's turned out. Really proud of it. And and it was a surprise because I didn't – it wasn't expected to be bad, but I was listening to it to check it. 
not to think, oh my God, this has really come out well. So, and uh, so that's obviously the plug. And also to a thank you to the people who have already got it and reviewed it. It's getting very positive responses. So, see, I'm not the only person who thinks it's good. There's at least two others. <laughs> <laughs> Your mum and. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's very cool. So available anywhere. So you can go on to um you can go on to uh your your uh, Audible account and get your book. Yep. Yep. Wow. iTunes too. Uh-huh. Hmm. Very cool, Graham. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, my fifth project product. Thank you. <laughs> and and what else do they get if they, they order this? Because with that sales hype voice that you had there, I was expecting you to say, and if you order today, you get these Jinsu knives. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you get it from the website, you can get all sorts of little bonuses, stickers and autograph things and, and box sets. But let's not dilute the plug. It's all about the audio book. And you probably want to buy it from the big boys and give them the majority of your money. So I just get a little cut at the end. But at least you can get it with one click and don't have to wait. Eureka, buy your audiobook now. Anywhere audiobooks are sold, give Graham a nickel out of that. And the rest of the big guys. <laughs> Good vlog. Sam, what have you got? Uh, well, um, after I've done the next couple of shows in the UK, I am back in the States and my tour over there starts um, with my first presentation of book signing. And that's on April the 19th at Frontline Eurosports in Salem, Virginia. And from there, I go to Horizons Unlimited, Virginia. Um, how do you pronounce Potomac, if I got that right? Um, well, anyway. Nobody's um, helping. So, no, exactly. Horizons Unlimited, Virginia. And that's, um, I'll be there on April 26th and 27th. Um, I can't stay for the whole thing, unfortunately, because I've got to scoot off to St. Louis um, to Gateway BMW for um, Tuesday, April 30th. And then I'm across to Oklahoma City to Eurotech. Um, for May the 4th, and then I am going to Sandia BMW in Albuquerque for May the 10th, and then the tour rounds off on um, May the 17th to the 19th at Overland Expo West in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, I tell you what, I can't wait. I'm, I'm absolutely buzzing to be back in the United States. I love the, the riding and the exploring and the people that I'm meeting and the number of Adventure Rider Radio um, listeners that I end up bumping into. It's it's really neat to do that. So I hope that lots of people are going to turn up um, at those various things. Um, Jim, is there any chance of putting those um, details in the show notes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we can put those in the show notes. I was going to say, so if somebody wants to come and see you, at, like if they're close to one of the dealers that you mentioned right now, um, yep. like what do they do? They just contact the dealer? If they're on Facebook, then just go onto Facebook and there's an events page and you can contact the dealer through um, the, their um, Facebook events page or just give them a buzz and say, I want to come. And all of the um, the dealership and Horizons and uh, dealership events are free. So people can just, um, yeah, roll on in and oh, spend wow. a couple they of hours. Oh, don't even have to pay to go. So, so when, nope. when they're going to the dealership, so you got to re reserve your spot, I guess. 
Um, the dealership wants to know how many people are coming in advance because they all tend to put nibbles on and that sort of thing. Um, it also means that if they're hiring in chairs, then they know how many to hire in. So it's a courtesy thing to touch base with um, the dealerships and say, yep, I'd like to come. Um, there, <laughs> I did a, a dealership um, on a trip um, last year and um, they had um, 80 seats. And we ended up with them having to pull motorcycles from other parts in the showroom and line them up at the back of the, the, the presentation area for people to sit on because they'd run out of seats. Wow. Um, I That's think where the sidecar would be handy. Were more, more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. What did you say? Uh, Which chairs were? The, the, the chairs were more comfortable. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, because it's a two-hour presentation, you see. So mm. um, it's easier to fidget um, on a chair than it is um, on a static motorcycle. Right. Very cool. And there's a list of um, the, of these uh, these uh, spots that you're going to be stopping at on your website, I assume. Yes, there are. Yeah, but we're um, going to put the list in the show notes anyway. Terrific. Thank you very much. Yep. Shirley, what do you have? Uh, absolutely nothing. Okay. And where do they find <laughs> us? Hogging the microphone, Shirley. <laughs> like, just calm down, Shirley, okay? Please. <laughs> the rest is a chance. <laughs> I had a good look at the um, Royal Enfield 650, and um, some people um, don't like the the Royal Enfield name, but I can tell you this bike is a brand-new bike. It was developed by uh, engineers that uh, defected across some Triumph. I think there was about 12 of them went over, and they've developed this bike. Royal Enfield are really particular about this particular bike. The test riders told them they'd tooled everything up ready to go, and they said, look, the, the rake is all wrong, and, you know, you want high-speed stability and all the rest of it. So they scrapped that uh, whole tooling, which cost them a million US dollars, and retooled the whole factory. Now, these things uh, retail on the road in Australia for under $10,000 which is pretty cheap for a, a 650cc motorcycle. It's learner approved, but I can tell you, we went scratching through the hills with um, these things and they handle beautifully. Um, they've got uh, plenty of power for a little 650 and I believe S&S &S now are developing uh, 8, 836, I think it is, CC kit to go in it, which should um, boost it from about 47 horsepower up to about 80 horsepower. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in a new bike or something a little bit different, go and have a look at one of those infields. I think they're a great little thing. And I, I'm not getting paid by infield for that either, I tell you. Um, the other thing is I'm um, preparing to do a little ride around Australia um, in May, June this year. Um, uh, I'm recreating a, a ride I did nine years ago now, um, talking to all the police commissioners around the country about um, raising money for police legacies and um, uh, a memorial ride that we do, this wall-to-wall -wall ride every year. So I'll be leaving um, Canberra on Sunday the 19th of May. If anyone's around, they know where the uh, memorial site is. Um, you can see me there. And I'm also going to do, a, a, so far, a few presentations around the country. One will be in Perth, of course, and um, that will be at, at um, Xander's shop. Uh, Overlander Adventure Equipment, uh, and I'll be in Perth from the Sunday, the 9th of June, 10th and 11th, uh, getting some fresh tyres probably. So I'm yet to work out which date I'll be doing a presentation over there with Xander. So if anyone's interested and they want to come along and have a chat about overlanding, um, 
big travel overseas, all the rest of it. Um, I'm really looking forward to to um, heading off and doing another quick trip around um, Australia. So they're my plugs. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Hey, um, Tal and Xander are just such neat people, aren't they? Oh, great people. Yeah, really good. And, um, I haven't seen their setup. I mean, I was I was watching when they were first, um, you know, setting up their shop and everything, and it sounds like they've got their heads screwed on well and truly. Yeah, and I know I know a lot of guys over in Perth really uh, appreciate what they've done and, uh, and support them. So uh, I'm also going to plug them and support them. Great effort, nice spot. Nice one, Grant. What have you got for a plug? Well. Um, what we've got is a new announcement on the Horizons Unlimited Mountain Madness front. The AMA has offered us, they came to us and said, you can have, or you can have your uh, home events be a part of the AMA Adventure Ride Series. So we now are on the KTM National Adventure Ride Series and the Beta AMA National Dual Sport Series as well. So this oh, is a wow. big deal. That's nice. That is yeah, incredible. They, and they came to us. <laughs> oh, wow. Obviously getting some good uh, word out there about the hum events. Oh, yeah. Well, they're growing and they're looking good. Um, the... Government shutdown means that we can't run the Hum Arizona because there isn't enough time to get a permit this year, which is really bummed us out. Um, however, the Hum Appalachians is on. That's happening. And the Hum Arizona for 2020 is definitely on. And the Hum Monashies in British Columbia is also on and looking to be even bigger and better than last year. We've got a whole new riding area, so lots happening. Check out the Hum Adventure Series, horizonsunlimited.com slash hum, H-U-M-M. I think you'll find that it's the adventure ride that you want to ride because it's, it's different. And as one guy said... You know, it, it's different from the usual ride because you have to actually go out there and find something. It gives you something to do rather than just ride. So there's a goal. There's a purpose. You've got a bit of a challenge. You've got to work out your navigation. You've got to figure it all out. And it's a real challenge and it's a blast. So check it out. And we've also got a brand new trailer, which will be out within a day or so. So by the time this is aired, you can see the really cool new trailer we've got for the event. So check it out. Wow! Just so Grant's nice. not blowing his own trumpet, mm. <laughs> um, the feedback I've had from people I know um, who've been on it has—it's uh, all been absolutely spot on. These guys have really loved the mix of um, the riding and um, the the route trailing and, and finding stuff and the atmosphere and so on. Um, I wish I was going to be in the states when one of them was on because I would be there for sure. Cool. AMA sanctions, very nice. And, Gr- yep. and Grant, when you're saying a new trailer, you're not talking the trailer you're putting the bikes in. You're talking a video trailer, right? Video trailer, yes. Sorry, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. Molly's done an amazing job for us. We love it. Wow, exciting stuff! A new season for those who are in snow right now, um, coming up anyway, and for those who are in sunshine and heat, Rix's, um, you'll be looking at fall before long. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but the writing's pretty good, Jim, I've got to say. No problem. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you very much, everyone. It's been fun. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Bye. Safe trip home, Graham. (laughs) Cheers, everybody. Good night. Good night. 
that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. Thanks to my co-host, Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley, Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They've got books out as well on their travels. Their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Fields in Bulgaria, again, author, has the audiobooks out. You heard about it on this episode. His website, grahamfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub literally for our adventure motorcycling community. Drop by and see what they've got going on. All kinds of meets, all kinds of events. www.horizonsunlimited.com. And we'd love it if you'd be interested in supporting Raw and Adventure Rider Radio. The more support we get, the better things are. So drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the support button. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And this episode was brought to you with the support of freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversation. My name's Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month.